Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light. In your truth, find wisdom. And in your will, discover your peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Today's scripture is from Jeremiah 16, 1 through 15. Then the word of the Lord came to me. You must not marry and have sons or daughters in this place. For this is what the Lord says about the sons and daughters born in this land and about the women who are their mothers and the men who are their fathers. They will die of deadly diseases. They will not be mourned or buried, but will be like dung lying on the ground. They will perish by sword and famine, and their dead bodies will become food for the birds and wild animals. For this is what the Lord says, Do not enter a house where there is a funeral meal. Do not go to mourn or show sympathy, because I have withdrawn my blessing, my love, and my pity from this people, declares the Lord. Both high and low will die in this land. They will not be buried or mourned, and no one will cut themselves or shave their head for the dead. No one will offer food to comfort those who mourn for the dead, not even for a father or a mother, nor will anyone give them drink to console them. And do not enter a house where there is feasting and sit down to eat and drink, for this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Before your eyes and in your days, I will bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness and to the voices of bride and bridegroom in this place. When you tell these people all this and they ask you, why has the Lord decreed such great disaster against us? What wrong have we done? What sin have we committed against the Lord our God? Then say to them, It is because your ancestors forsook me, declares the Lord, and followed other gods and served and worshipped them. They forsook me and did not keep my law. But you have behaved more wickedly than your ancestors. See how all of you are following the stubbornness of your evil hearts instead of obeying me? So... I will throw you out of this land into a land neither you nor your ancestors have known, and there you will serve other gods day and night, for I will show you no favor. However, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, but it will be said, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them. For I will restore them to the land I gave their ancestors. The word of the Lord. As uh, Terry uh, mentioned in prayer today, in two weeks we're hosting the, the preacher and theologian uh, Fleming Rutledge for this series of events at Upper House and Neshota House and, and here at Geneva. And uh, the, the way that this project got started was about nine months ago, a group of us uh, here at Geneva started reading a book by Fleming called The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ. And it's a book that has won some awards and it's received a lot of acclaim for bringing attention, uh, kind of renewed attention, to the centrality 
of the cross for Christians. And the first part of this book is all about the scandal of the cross. Uh, not just the suffering and the, the pain involved in the, the Roman act of crucifixion, though all that's true, but the, but the shame and the humiliation of it, uh, both in the ancient world and, and even today. And she, she wants us to understand how shocking, how, how completely shocking it was for the early Christians to claim that God identified with this brutal form of execution. And then, about 200 pages into the book, she asks a, a really key question. Uh, Ellen actually brought this to us in, in the adult ed hour earlier. Uh, she asks, what sort of predicament are you and I in that we should require the crucifixion of the Son of God? What sort of predicament are you and I in that we should require the crucifixion of the Son of God? Well, I think that this question is also really central to the book of Jeremiah, which we're going through in, in this series, and we're about at the, the halfway point. Uh, though Jeremiah was preaching 600 years before Jesus, he was also wrestling with this question of the human predicament. This is what makes his book so powerful. Jeremiah didn't shy away from difficult things. Uh, he was transparent about his own suffering, and, and he was honest about problems of injustice and, and sin in the world. He asked people, he, he, he demanded that people face things that were wrong. But he also offered hope. And he invited the people to return to God, to, to repent. Really, I think Jeremiah's message was, was very simple. He told the people that they had to go down to go up. They had to face their predicament, admit it for what it was, and, and only then they would be in a position to, to deal with it. Our, our text today teaches us that the same thing is, is still true. You have to go down to go up. The three things that we learn here today. First, in verses 1 to 9, we see how Jeremiah went down. Second, we learn why you have to go down to go up in, in verses 10 to 13. And third, we see what God does for us when we're at the bottom in verses 14 to 15. So, how Jeremiah went down, why you have to go down to go up, and then what God does for us at the bottom. First, how Jeremiah went down. God prohibits Jeremiah from doing three things, all of which would have made him stand out in his own society and probably in ours too. First, God commanded Jeremiah not to get married or to have children. Now, this is not you know, uncommon for us, but Jeremiah's commitment to celibacy would have made him pretty strange in ancient Israel. Most people married, and, and they married young. So this, this word of the Lord must have come to Jeremiah at a, at a pretty young age when he would have normally gotten married. His career as a prophet lasted for about 40 years. So this commitment would have made him pretty unusual throughout his whole life. 
But then God gives him two additional commands that make him stand out even more. In verse 5 and in verse 8, he's told not to attend any funerals or celebrations like weddings. He was to cut himself off from community life, both the highs and the lows. He probably offended a lot of people by not showing up to their parties. I I doubt that he had many friends. He was called, really, to a life of profound loneliness. Social scientists say that we're living in the midst of what they call a loneliness epidemic. Last year, the health company Cigna released the results of a major study on this. They discovered that most Americans suffer from strong feelings of loneliness and a lack of significance in their relationships. Nearly half say they sometimes or always feel alone. 13% of Americans say that zero people know them well. In addition, researchers have discovered that chronic loneliness has profound health effects. One person has summarized uh, these results by saying that loneliness is worse for health than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's associated with greater risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, depression, anxiety. And Jeremiah experienced some of these results in, in his own body as well. His life became a kind of parable, a lived parable. He embodied the judgment that he proclaimed over Israel. And after each one of God's commands, we, we learn the reason for it. So he doesn't get married because, in af- in, because after Babylon invades, no one will be getting married. He's not to go to funerals because in the coming catastrophe, the normal rituals of life and death will be interrupted. And there, there won't be any parties either. Jeremiah is often called the weeping prophet. But a better title might be the numb prophet. He doesn't mourn or rejoice. He's numb to life, both the highs and the lows. He doesn't feel anything anymore. This might be the worst kind of judgment at all. Of all, if you feel pain, you're alive. But Jeremiah is telling and communicating with his whole life Uh, to the people that that life cannot continue cut off from the the blessing and the love of God. He embodied the message. Maybe the, the best analogy that we have for understanding what it means to embody a message like this is is from the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King Jr. and and those who marched with him embodied suffering love, even for enemies. In a sermon, Dr. King explained why. He said, To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. Throw us in jail, and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour, and beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. But be assured 
that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, not only for ourselves, we shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. Now, not all of us are, are, are called to the degree of suffering that we see in Jeremiah or in the life of Dr. King. But all Christians are called to embody the gospel in some way. In fact, we heard that read at the beginning of our service today in our, in our own mission statement here at Geneva Campus Church, where we say that we're called to embody the gospel in our life together. And there's no way to do this without sacrifice, without sacrifice and, and suffering of some kind. You have to go down to go up. Let me, let me explain why. In verse 10, we hear the people's response to Jeremiah. When you tell these people all this, and they ask, why has the Lord decreed such a disaster against us? What, what wrong have we done? What sin have we committed against the Lord our God? I, I believe that the, the repetition here, uh, this threefold repetition of, of why and, and what, is intentionally ironic for, for two reasons. First, we're in chapter 16, and Jeremiah has already made it pretty clear uh, what the problem is. This isn't the first time that these people have heard these warnings from Jeremiah. And second, the, this repetition of why, what, what, it, it suggests that the people are avoiding the issue. Who, us? We have a problem? What makes you think that? Linda and I are, are celebrating our, our 20th anniversary in March. And for the first 10 years or so of our marriage, uh, whenever we would have an argument, and uh, she would say, Jim, I I'm sorry that we're having this argument, uh, I would respond, we're not having an argument, we're just having a discussion. I say this only happened for the first 10 years of our marriage because now when I say it, she just starts laughing at me. It's really hard to have an argument when you're laughing. But really, I, I was just in denial that we were having an argument. I think the Israelites are in a similar place. They're in denial that, that they've done anything wrong. So once again, God tells them in verses 11 and 12, First, he says in verse 11, it's because your ancestors forsook, here's a good Bible word, abandoned me, they forsook me and followed other gods and served and worshipped them. They forsook me and did not keep my law. The, the law called the people to live lives of justice with one another and, and with others. We've, we've seen several times in the book how these themes of idolatry and injustice are intertwined. If you really care about injustice, you've got to attend to issues of idolatry. When you, when you see injustice, something is being exalted over loving God and, and loving others, greed or, or personal security or ambition. So the Lord says that their ancestors have done this, but this is not just a problem of the past, it's also in the present. Verse 12, but you have behaved more wickedly than your ancestors. See how all of you are following the stubbornness of your evil hearts instead of obeying me. 
This is why we have to go down to go up. We're so good at avoiding and denying our brokenness and our sin. But when you see the roots of your behavior in your heart, then you begin to grasp the problem for what it is. Jesus himself said this, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. The invitation of Christianity is to confess not just that we've done wrong deeds, but that those deeds have roots in the heart, in hearts that are resistant to the ways of our Creator. Like some of you, I imagine, uh, I was dreaming this week about the warm months of summer. I was thinking about the sunflowers that we grow in our backyard. It's amazing how they turn to face the sun throughout the day, automatically and naturally, turning to face the sun. That, that really should be our response to God, seeking his face, following him. The most important question is, is what direction are you facing? This is why we have a confession of sin in our worship service uh, here every week. It's not just to beat ourselves up over wrong things that we've done, but to turn our hearts toward God like the sunflower turns towards the sun. The good news is that when we reach the bottom, when we admit our need, when we stop covering up or avoiding or pretending, God meets us with his grace. Verses 14 and 15 show us what God does for those who've come to the end of their own resources. However, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, but it will be said, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them. For I will restore them to the land I gave their ancestors." In these words, the Lord makes himself the foundation for redemption. In love, he chose to redeem his people from slavery in Egypt. And he can do it again. In love, he chooses to redeem them from exile. We've been seeing two things in in Jeremiah. First, Jeremiah was a radical truth teller. Uh, telling the truth about problems in the world and in people. But second, Jeremiah was also a proclaimer of radical love. God will not give up on his people. This is still who God is today. Tim Keller says that this combination of truth and love are what make the gospel, or really any relationship, so powerful. Uh, He writes, Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are 
and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and to repent. The conviction and the repentance moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace. In Christ, we find a new and a greater exodus, not just from Egypt or from exile, but from sin and from death itself. We've seen in this series that Jesus models his ministry and his own prophetic identity after Jeremiah in many ways. Jesus also proclaimed judgment. But he was also very different from Jeremiah. He attended weddings and funerals. He partied with tax collectors and sinners. He wept over his friend Lazarus. He transformed singleness from a sign of judgment into a calling to serve God and others. On the cross, he embodied truth and love together. The cross reveals the judgment that our sin deserves and the love that is willing to take that judgment upon itself. Jeremiah experienced a painful separation from others, loss of a relationship, rejection. Anyone who's grieved the loss of a relationship understands how painful that can be. But I don't think that we can fully grasp the pain of Jesus on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a mystery. How can the author of life die? How can the eternal communion of the Trinity be fractured? But the cross tells us that Jesus willingly took that pain upon himself. He was excluded so that we might be welcomed. He embodied God's suffering love for you and for me. In a few minutes, we're going to sing a, a song, uh, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. In it, there's this line, How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away. I think what this is telling us is that the pain belongs to both Jesus and the Father. As they, as they did what only they could do to save us. The British writer Francis Spufford once said in an interview that Christianity is a tragicomic religion, a, a combination of tragedy and comedy. He says, it's, it's hopelessly mixed in genre. The only genre I know that ends with a, a death sentence and then a wedding. Theologian Michael Horton says something similar. He writes, after the funeral, there is dancing. In repentance, we say no to the idols, powers, rulers, and lies of this present evil age. And in faith, we say yes to Christ, in whom all the promises of God find their yes. The way up is down. When you can speak the truth about your own heart and also see the depth of the love of God for you. You have a joy and a hope that will sustain you through any circumstances, any rejection, any failure. Because you know that the, the promises of God are not dependent on you, but on Christ. And he has died for you. 
He is risen for you. And he will come again to make all things right. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Our Father, apart from your grace, uh, we are really incapable of, of grieving for things that are wrong in our lives uh, or in, in our world. So we ask you to help us to lament with honesty. At the same time, we need your grace to remind us that we lament in hope. Help us to believe that the, the celebration and the rejoicing will be greater than we can imagine because we have taken the time to, to say hard things. Uh, to pray hard prayers, to love even when there is a cost uh, to that love. Thank you, Jesus, that you reveal to us a, a suffering, sacrificial love that is for all who believe. Help us to see your love today and to know the, the Father's love through you. Now, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may we love as you love, serve as you serve, and, and give as you give. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.